This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 631 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm the internet's Joe Patrick, your head number one, and that's right, it's three shows in a row, babies. What's that? We made it, three shows in a row. I think that means we're back, officially oh, back. Oh, yeah, we haven't canceled any shows. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I'm three, head. Three, 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 three shows in a row. I'm your head number two. My name is Matt Baum, and it's time for another Cosmic Longbox show, where our sentient and empowered Cosmic Longbox flings us through the comic time stream to talk about some classic comics based on a theme. I like to picture us riding it like a hobby horse through space and time, like, whoa! Like, yeah, yeah, I'm right. I'm in front, you're in back, your arms are around me, and, you know, it's great. This time, our theme is the Suicide Squad characters from the latest James Gunn film in comic appearances outside of the Suicide Squad comic. Very specific Cosmic Long Box. I'm impressed. And then if we survive the experience, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week. It's all happening in this chrono-displaced episode. And that sound you hear is the Cosmic Long Box warming up. Hold on to your butts, Suicide Squad fans, because there's no promising we come home alive from this one. Whether you loved or hated James Gunn's new Suicide Squad film, you probably asked yourself, who the hell are these guys? Now, normally, we would let THN historian Jason Sachs answer that question, but since... There are so many DC villains that made appearances in the film, it seemed like the Cosmic Longbox was perfect to explore their comic book appearances and maybe even learn a little bit about these lovable losers. Joe, I insist you start us off. Of all of the remaining characters that first appeared in the Silver Age, I figured I'd pick the one that people thought was the most popular. That's Captain Boomerang from Flash 117, DC Comics, the year was 1960. This is written by John Broom with art by Carmine Infantino. It's got a cover price of one thin dime. That's right, baby. Here's a little background about Captain Boomerang. Uh, He's secretly the illegitimate son of an American soldier and an Australian woman. George Digger Harkness was raised in an Australian town called Kurumbura in poverty, during which time he developed great skill in making boomerangs and in using them as weapons, which is kind of what boomerangs were all about. As a young adult, he was hired as a performer and boomerang promoter (laughs) by a toy company, which was, unbeknownst to him, owned by his biological father, Twist. What? Really? I didn't know that. That that twist. uh, Well, I'll get to that. Uh, It was at this time that he developed the Captain Boomerang persona that he would continue to use in his later criminal career. Uh, Audiences ridiculed him. And a resentful Harkness turned to using his boomerangs for crime. Fast forward to the mid 80s and Boomer would become an original member of Amanda Waller's Suicide Squad. Uh, that's what our pal Wikipedia has to say about Digger Harkness. But though the thing we with don't Dad, actually that's not here, right? Right. We don't okay. learn anything about his parentage in this first appearance. And also absent is any sort of inkling 
that Harkness was a laughingstock or ever anything more than a criminal for that matter. Yeah. Uh, but that's what you get for using Wikipedia as a source, I guess. And what you get from this comic is the bonkers debut of one of my favorite Flash rogues. And it's the kind of silly that only the Silver Age Flash can be. This book has it all. Outrageous, on-brand death traps. It's very important that they're on-brand. Clown-themed, giant boomerang-themed. You get it. Yeah. Bizarre applications of superpowers, uh, like things that you would not think would apply to super speed. (laughs) Ridiculous leaps in logic and characters acting like complete morons just because the story demands it. Like, for example, Flash, these are my parents. They'll tell you what a good guy I am. Oh, I guess you are a good guy, Captain Boomerang. Nuts. They're criminal actors. Dang it. Well, that's what you do. You hire criminals yeah, sure, to right. come and act and tell right. them. Like, when to they, pretend, when, yes. You've tried to get a job before, right? And you're like, hey, can you give me a good, you know, like whatever if they call and be like, yeah, he totally didn't steal from the <laughs> register. You know, like yeah, right. I really and liked like, working with Joe. <laughs> I, I, I swear to God. And like you can chalk this up to an, an art error or a scripting error or whatever. But um, in that scene, the guy playing Digger's father says something to the effect of as his mother, I should know. (laughs) And the flash goes, Hmm. (laughs) Like he, it wasn't just obvious that a man called himself Captain Boomerang's mother. Maybe that's how he identifies Joe. I'm not going to recognize. Well, he had already, like he had already identified himself as Captain Boomerang's father, a panel earlier. (laughs) Maybe he changed his mind pretty quick. I guess. I I mean, gender is fluid. That's right. Uh, Look, I loved every second of this dumb thing. Broom's story and dialogue are ludicrous in the very best ways. And when it comes to Silver Age comic art, it can sometimes get a little dicey. You know, you've got your Kirby's and your Steve Ditko's and that's all well and good. Joe Cooper, you know, Uh, sometimes, though, you've got guys that are a little bit less beloved. But Carmine Infantino's work shines here. Yeah. Just like Captain Boomerang's gigantic forehead. He's got the biggest noggin he does and i almost was like waiting for someone to make fun of him for it or say something about it nope or he at least hit his head on a door frame or something he's australian he's australian man that's that's just just it this has a big head he's a big head he's got a big head Uh, flash 117 is peak silver age lunacy i'm giving it a huge buy it it's so much fun the art like carmine infantino uh, much like steve ditko did in the 90s Carmine Infantino came back in the 80s and it had a run on the Flash comic in the right. 80s pre-crisis. Um, the art is weird. It's fun to see him in his prime because he was a phenomenal artist. He was exceptional. This, this yeah. comic book is gorgeous. Um, there's also a backup story that I that is unrelated to Captain Boomerang, but I read it just for shits and giggles. It is about a group of um, idiot inventors and I can't decide whether or not they're based off of the Three Stooges or based off of the Marx Brothers or both. I think it was the Marx Brothers. I think okay. that's what they were going for. But regardless, uh, it wasn't funny. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And like, it's it's like, okay, you're clearly morons. Yeah. And and yet you have still somehow invented a biological wonder that lets your car leap to gigantic heights. <laughs> there, there's, I mean, let's not dwell too long on this but that's a theme that's going to continue with a lot of these characters sure yeah no it's true yeah 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 you are captain boomerang 
You could be a millionaire just building weapons for the government. Well, I mean, he's just here. He's just really good at throwing boomerangs. But he built a gigantic boomerang capable of launching something into space. Did he? Or did they build that for him? Who, the toy maker? Yeah, I don't know, because they didn't show him build it or anything. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know any toy makers that can build things capable of launching into space. They gave him all the boomerangs, too, so I don't know. From this, if he's a genius that's that's engineering boomerangs, I don't see it The timeline is fuzzy. Yeah, I I don't see that here. (laughs) I would argue later on, definitely, like, this has no bearing whatsoever on the character that we know as Captain Boomerang today. And later on, he's developing... A bunch of deadly boomerangs that do yeah, stuff. Yeah, he's got a boomerangs that explode this that are razor sharp. Throwaway Silver Age. We need a villain for the Flash that's not going to offend anyone because of the comics code. So how about a guy that throws boomerangs and and where do boomerangs come from? Australia. So of course sure. he's Australian. You know, it, it's laughably dumb, but the art is incredible. Carmen Infantino is a very, very you know important comic artist of his time that informed a lot of other artists we love. This was, it's, it's just hard to like talk about these seriously, but it is good. Yeah. I'm giving it a right. buy it. it. It is a silly silver age I, book with a ridiculous I, I, villain. You look like you need a holiday, a fair dinkum holiday in the land of wonder, the land down under. Let's move to 1984 Green Lantern number 173 from DC. It's written by Len Wein with art by Dave Gibbons. This is your first appearance of the javelin. The Javelin was a German Olympian, you guessed it. Shot putter. Javelin thrower, who turned to a life of crime for reasons. The Javelin uses an arsenal of customized Javelins to commit his crimes, and he's tasked with stealing an experimental solar engine from Ferris Air. Who else do you call, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. You're the guy, the Javelin. This issue story takes place right after Hal had been exiled from Earth for a year after ignoring a distress call to save Carol. So he's super jazzed to be back. Wine and Gibbons obviously created Javelin as a throwaway villain with a ridiculous premise, but it seems there was a parade of weird Green Lantern villains at the time. The shark shows up in the end of the next issue, by the way. Not King Shark, just a guy with a shark head. And you would think... A guy with a bunch of javelins, or perhaps a guy with a shark head, would be no match for Hal. And he shouldn't be, but he just happens to have a yellow javelin that squirts yellow plastic. Part of Hal's powers at the time is a weakness to the color yellow. But, of course, he figures out a clever way around that, too. Wine's writing is very Silver Age for 1984, and the javelin with his cartoonish German accent sure feels like a product of the late 60s but gibbon's art is great you can see him coming into the style that would make him famous in the pages of watchmen the javelin would go on to join the suicide squad but i don't think anyone would have predicted he would one day end up on the big screen this (laughs) certainly isn't quintessential reading for the javelin but to be fair i don't think there is a must-read story for this lovable loser out there i'm giving this a skimmin and you can squarely put javelin in that same category as captain boomerang where it's like i'm just obsessed with this one thing right. and i've got a bunch of them to do a bunch of dumb shit you know <laughs> like i i mean i gotta give props to the guys that have a theme and stick to it there are guys like uh trident who was a uh a, a, a villain from the uh, wolfman perez new teen titans right and it's like his whole deal is like i have a trident 
Look out, world. I've got a trident. Well, there's a whole list. It's not even. Them. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not even like a good. It's not even like a cool trident. It's just like a it's just like a metal stick with three points. You know, it's like well, that's your gimmick. You have a, a sharp stick, you know, and uh, yeah, but DC is lousy with them and God bless them all. Um, both of those characters, by the way, uh, Trident and uh, Javelin were featured in Brad Meltzer's first arc when he took over Justice League of America. Really? I don't remember that. Yes, uh, there was a there was something about Javelin. And there was something about Trident and uh, like Tattooed Man was there as well. And like, so yeah, uh, and that's like literally one of the first and only places I've ever seen these characters. It is telling though to the state of the writing at the time. And the reason I give it a skim it is because it's like Hal Jordan has the most powerful weapon in the universe. Yeah, right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. should not have any problems with this guy. There is no reason yeah. why he should have a problem with the javelin, but it's like, we got to write something. <laughs> so here you are, kids. <laughs> like how's at this point, you know, 1980, what is this? 86? No, um, 84. Hal's been around for what? 20 years, almost 25 years at this right. point. We should probably not be writing stories anymore where it's like, oh no, this minor inconvenience might ruin the day. Right. This feels like a cap. Like, this feels like the Captain Boomerang story we just read. Right. Like you have the power of a god, Hal. On, you, you you have the power of a cosmic god. Yeah. And not even like an especially powerful one. No. Like a minor cosmic god. <laughs> this guy with sharp sticks is not a threat. Right. Anyone, uh, any Olympian, I don't care what you do. No, no, you yeah. Lose sorry. That fight. Uh, look, <laughs> green sorry, sorry, Flo Joe. You've, <laughs> yeah. you've got no chance against Hal Jordan. Uh, but yeah, I do. I do love James Gunn's uh, dedication to the whole German thing, like sticking to the German thing with Flula Borg. Yeah, it's it was great. wonderful. It was great. Now, I will say this version of the Javelin. Yeah, probably exactly what we got on the screen. Honestly. Pretty damn close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a skim. I, this is really right. something that's fun only for the art as well. Yeah, and there's some, I mean, there's some good stuff like character wise that's going on with him and Carol Ferris and whatnot. This just kind of feels like a throwaway issue. Right, right. Yeah. Like I, I remember uh, I had some other issues of Green Lantern from around this era and they were like space centric, probably during the time he was exiled. And I remember them being much more compelling, right? Like sure. Hal has found a dead planet and the whole exile storyline was like, yeah, it's really great. cool. And then you came back to earth for the fucking javelin. I'm like, really? Yeah. And like that, I remember <laughs> distinctly, like the issue that I had was drawn by Alex Toth. I was like, Jesus, like as a kid, I didn't know any better, but now I'm looking back and it's like, yeah, the guy that created fucking space ghost and the Herculoids drew this one issue of green lantern that freaked my bean as an eight year old kid. Now my loyal subjects without green lantern to protect them, the guardians of the universe shall fall before my might stand by to blast off. We're going to jump forward a couple of years to uh, Vigilante number 36. This came out in 1986. It's written by Paul Kupperberg with art by Denny Cowan and Kyle Baker, which is quite a duo. Yeah. It's you, got and the, you wouldn't uh, know. <laughs> you would not know uh, Kyle Baker was involved. You wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, it's got a cover price of $1.50, which in 1986 is fucking steep. That's double the price of the average comic book on the stands. Was it really? Yeah, I guess everything was. Like yeah, because Vigilante was time. a Baxter series. It was. Uh, oh, it was big right. time. Yeah, that's it was right. prestige. Here's some background for you. 
created by Joe Gill and Bill Montez in 1966, the peacemaker is Christopher Smith, a pacifist diplomat so committed to peace that he was willing to use force as a superhero to advance the cause. He originally used non-lethal weapons, mostly against dictators and warlords. That was then when he was an innocent Charlton comics character. And then he was bought by DC comics and following crisis on infinite earths and DC's acquisition of Charlton's characters. We learned that his peace through violence efforts were the result of a serious mental illness brought on by the shame of having a Nazi death camp commandant for a father. I mean, that'll do that to any kid. Ugh. Sure. I get it. No, Not yeah, really. <laughs> Not your fault, son. Uh, he believes his father's spirit haunts him continually and criticizes his every move, even as he tries to live down his past. He begins to believe that the ghosts of the people that he's killed or who were even killed in his vicinity, he didn't even have to be the one that killed them, are collected inside that big metal toilet bowl on his head. Yeah. And they offer him advice and commentary. I'm not sure what kind of advice they're giving him if he's the one that killed them. Yeah, it sure seems like they're just kind of yelling at him all the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for a while, Peacemaker served as a member of Checkmate, which was a branch of the same government agency that controlled the Suicide Squad, uh, hunting down terrorists until his own behavior became too extreme. Now, I thought that he was a member of the Suicide Squad, but I actually could not find anything where he actually joined the team other than he just like appeared in the book. He eventually uh, crashed a helicopter to destroy tanks that were being controlled by the supervillain Eclipso and was reported deed. This would have been in the early 90s. So, yeah, I don't know if you know anything about this, Matt, but Peacemaker, I don't think ever actually was a member of the Suicide Squad in I, those comics. I couldn't find evidence of it either. I found evidence of him in the comic book, like you said, but not like he was yeah. arrested and had to join the Suicide Squad. Right. He was Suicide Squad adjacent. Yes. So Peacemaker makes his first appearance as a DC character in this issue, which is a pretty wild place to have your first experience with the vigilante, let yeah. me tell you. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Chase, who, as far as I have always known, was vigilante. Like, Adrian Chase is vigilante. I just know that through osmosis. And yet, in this comic, he wasn't vigilante in this issue, having given up his identity to a successor and returned to normal life as a judge. The guy was a judge was, running around as a vigilante killing people. That was his whole thing. It was like a daredevil thing. Like, if he couldn't, sure, I if guess. He couldn't dole out justice in the courtroom, he did it after hours with a ski mask. And goggles on. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, apparently, that whole status quo lasted all of five minutes as terrorists attempt to hijack the plane that Chase has boarded. Fortunately, the new vigilante knew that Chase was there and headed to the airport for a rescue. This the, Unfortunately. This was back in the day when it was way easier to bring a handgun and a few grenades onto a plane than it is now. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. They literally like fall out of the compartment. The woman's like, it's oh, like, pardon oh, me. Whoops. I'm going to put my bag up here. And they're like, oh, sure. No problem. And she opens up and it's like handgun grenades. <laughs> it's come doping out. <laughs> it was like an infomercial. Yeah. Right? Have you, are you tired of this happening you to you? <laughs> but it's like you're a terrorist and you stored those in the overhead storage compartment. <laughs> that seems no one's going to see it if they open it. Come on, man. What are you doing? Well, I mean, they're in the bag, right? They're in the bag. Well, I, when she opened it, they just came dumping out. 
Uh, I mean, I pres- I have to make the logical leap that she had them in the bag and the bag somehow came over. She open. was not the terrorist, though. She was because she was like, oh, my God. Oh, but there was a female terrorist. I don't there know. Was. Anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Peacemaker was coincidentally at the same airport and he's ready to go in. Guns a blazing replacement. Uh, peacemaker. No, no, no. Peacemaker, not replacement vigilante. Peacemaker. Time out. Oh, pardon me. Peacemaker. You're right. Vigilante. My bad. Yeah. Uh, now, I have never read a Peacemaker comic book before this one. Like, it, it, maybe I had one where he appeared in the background or something like Crisis or whatever, but I've never read a comic book that has Peacemaker as a main character. I had no idea how absolutely banana pants crazy he is. Yeah. He is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Now, maybe they did downplay that in future appearances. Maybe they didn't. But here, he just guns down the new vigilante for practically no reason whatsoever. Well, he grabbed like, him. He's like, I don't like being touched. Sure. Bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, and I don't mean like, oops, I accidentally shot the vigilante. It's like I emptied an Uzi into the chest of the vigilante from four feet away. And of course, this is in between blasting terrorists and mumbling to the ghosts in his helmet. Coverberg's script is pretty decent 80s action fair. It's very Punisher adjacent for yeah. obvious reasons. Uh, the art by the tag team of Cowan and Baker should have been a slam dunk, but I had to read this like three times before I started to warm up to how bizarre it is. It's weird looking. And that's Denny Cowan. Like Denny Cowan is an, his, his pencil art style is peculiar. It's different. You know what? I love Denny Cowan. I know. I love him. And Denny Cowan is an artist that I can appreciate his talents, but I don't always love the stuff that I read from him. That's fair. His shit's weird. I agree. And that's me. You know, I love it. He's an acquired taste. Let's say, Uh, I do think though, that I did settle on the art in this being kind of awesome in its own weird way. <laughs> After you just said that, you're like, oh, no, I'm look, awesome. I'm saying like, it took me a while. Yeah. It took me a while to warm up to it. It's very bizarre. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't know what to make of this comic. Uh, even the most sane character is obviously a lunatic. Like Adrian chase is not okay. No, but uh, vigilante 36 it's a wild ride to say the very least I'm giving it a skim it because I just like, I couldn't like it's a, it does a terrible job of introducing any of the players at all. Oh, they, I mean, they definitely at this point, while writing something like this, there was something experimental going on here. There wasn't a lot of other stuff like this punisher aside on the stands and they were telling the story of a madman. And look, I've never read any vigilante stuff. I've never read any peacemaker stuff. This is my first exposure. I really liked this and got really interested in the character just because he was so they're all so nuts. And like, this is a totally different, darker DC universe than I thought even existed at this point in time. Oh yeah. I I love the art. I loved there's a scene and I, and I put it on our Instagram that is so completely John Cena and it's, (laughs) <laughs> it's the peacemaker talking to the vigilante, you know, right. and it, it's just such a great scene. And you can tell like, this is exactly what they went for with the character. Let me find it real quick. Like he's just gunned down a couple terrorists. The right. Vigilante, this is right where, but this is right before the vigilante gets plugged. Right. The vigilante jumps into the plane and he's like, all right, pal, hold it right there. And he's like, I'm the peacemaker. I want peace. I love peace <laughs> enough to kill for it. And vigilante, he's like, that's crazy. And he goes, you're entitled to your own opinion. That's what makes America great. 
that's so perfectly John Cena. <laughs> right, yeah. You know? So I would argue, aside from the voices in his head in the helmet or whatever, this is very Peacemaker in the Suicide Squad as we've seen him. He's this pro-American doofus who is, in, you know, at the end of the day, a murderer and just a citizen who thinks he's doing this. But I got to say, I got really interested in Vigilante. I want to read more of this because it's so weird. I'm giving this a buy it. I, well, I really he was an agent, it. right? He was being he was being used as an operative by uh um yes by uh whatever group uh so that woman in the bandages is negative woman. But they right? lost control of him. That was right. The but they were like, he's too crazy. We can't yeah. like we have to cut him loose. And he's too far like, gone. We can't tell anybody we did this because he's just a citizen. <laughs> so, right. Right. Like, yeah. What yeah. a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, guys, you didn't think this one through. Yeah. We're going to stay in the 80s for this one. I'm talking about The Furry of Firestorm, number 38 from DC. <laughs> it was 1985. This was written by Jerry Conway with art by Raphael Kayanen. We can certainly all agree that the weasel in the second Suicide Squad movie was a monster. He's a, some sort of mutant. Yes. As it turns out, the comic version the character was based on was just an unlikable murderer in a suit. A yep. weasel suit. You see, John yep. Monroe was a former colleague of Martin Steen, who is one half of Firestorm, along with Ronnie Raymond. Monroe first appeared in Fury of Firestorm 36, but his first full story is here, where John has been murdering colleagues that didn't like him for the fear that he would lose his <laughs> tenure as a professor. <laughs> Just so happens, those colleagues teased him, and they called him, you guessed it, Weasel. He's kind of a skinny guy. He was a nerd, you know. Like the Taskmaster, the Weasel suffers from a serious case of artists making the costume look way too real. Or Conway and Cannon hadn't decided he was wearing a suit yet. It's hard to know. <laughs> Cannon's art is very good. It's highly detailed and very much not DC House style of the time. He draws the Weasel as a full-on weasel monster. Fur, fangs, the whole shebang. Which makes him more than your run-of-the-mill psychopath. He's the kind of guy that needs to make an incredibly realistic costume before he starts killing people. The weasel would go on to get captured after... It's important. Yeah, absolutely. The weasel would go on to get captured after failing to kill Stein and forced into the Suicide Squad, where he would later be murdered by Rick Flagg Jr., who went into a rage while wearing the thinker's helmet. It was a whole thing. Firestorm yep. is a wild comic. And while the weasel was definitely another throwaway villain, Conway writes him like a convincing maniac, even though his motives were, well, bad, <laughs> to be quite honest. Yeah. I really dug Cannon's art, though, and I forgot that I really liked the same guy's pencils on Captain Adam, Volume 2. While I was looking at this, like, I didn't recognize the name, and I kept thinking, I have seen this art style. And I dug around, and I have those Captain Adam comics. Oh, interesting. Captain Adam, most of Captain Adam, or a lot of it, was drawn by Pat Broderick. Yeah. That must have been a little later on. He takes over, like, issues 29 through, like, 52 or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. But I'm giving this a buy it. It was a wild ride. The uh, yeah, art no, was great. And even though, like I said, total throwaway bullshit, 
but they really wrote this character. <laughs> they, they did. Really yeah. No, did. They, they, he, like he's committed to the bit, right. You know, yeah. he's, he, and I actually, you know, you said that thing about maybe they didn't, uh, they didn't decide uh, whether or not he was an animal or a guy in a suit, uh, until the last minute. And I'm like, you know what? I'm flipping. I want to flip through this again because I want to see if I can find a panel where his face is not in that exact same taxidermied open mouth fangs bared. Well, in position, the right? before this, they show him as a normal guy. So like, right, he, right. He uh, was just well, a but, guy. Yes. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I, the, the suit, it, it does look like, you know, there's a thing that kind of, if I, if I think too much about it, it, it breaks my um, immersion where it's like, Steel's mask shouldn't emote. Right. Why does Steel's mask emote? Yeah. And like on the cover of this, the, the weasel has giant monster feet that are literally grabbing a building and what looks like a prehensile tail. So that's oh, a yeah. real commitment to building a suit to right. murder people. But I mean, I, but, <laughs> like I was, I was thinking, you know, I, what I was trying to remember was, did they ever draw his face in such a way that it looked like the face was um, animated? I mean, that it, the, it, they definitely and they with do. The mouth Unfortunately, they yeah. do. There's there's one, but I'm telling you, I flipped through this entire comic again while you were reading, uh, while you were doing your review, and it only happens one time at the very end where yeah. his mouth is closed, his jaw is clenched. Because at first I thought so maybe up, he's up, like, up until that point, I just thought, you know what? It's a taxidermied head, right? It or, just looks like a huge taxidermied head, like King from Tekken with the jaguar mask on and the mouth's always sure, open, maybe. Right. You know, and there's a dude in there, but. Wow. I, I mean, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, like the weasel thing is dumb. Uh, it's silly, but this art is tremendous. It really is. Um, There's one of the coolest Firestorm trans. And I'm going to come right out. I don't care yeah. about Firestorm. I, I love really Firestorm. don't care. I love it. Never did it for me. I could, I could never stand these characters that are like, due to a crazy accident, they got crazy powers. And this spiffy costume. <laughs> well, he makes the costume. I know. But like there is a kick ass transformation where he's like falling, where yeah. Stein is falling from a building and Ronnie merges with him right before he hits a car and bam, Firestorm is there. Like awesome. Page. Um, like I, I love, uh, I, I love this effect that they do for his powers. He's got that kind of swirly atom, yeah. uh, you know, uh, protons and electrons swirling around a nucleus kind of thing going on. And part of Firestorm's power is that he can like rearrange molecules so that he can phase through solid matter. Sure. And so as he's about to hit the ground, he becomes Firestorm at the last second and phases through the sidewalk and then flies back out of the sidewalk as Firestorm. Yeah. And it's incredible. Now, and this is definitely I love another it. case uh, where Firestorm is way too powerful. Yeah, this guy is not a threat. This guy is weasel. not a threat. <laughs> yeah. This guy is not a threat to Firestorm. So what did they do? They get up to the hotel room where Stein was attacked. They separate back into Ronnie and Professor Stein. And then the weasel catches them unaware and there ties them up like a death in a death trap. Right. It's it's the most idiotic thing. Um, but, you know, this is a super fun comic. It's a great. Uh, the art is great. Uh, a lot of credit goes to this uh, inking team who I have read about recently. Aiken and Garvey. They were inking partners. And they kind of give this book a very like pre vertigo swamp thing kind of tone. Totally. Right. Yeah. That kind of like heavy yeah. ink 
uh, thick line, heavy ink, heavy brush stroke kind of appearance. Well, and the, it doesn't book, look like anything superhero related. It looks scary. It's a scary looking book. They were telling the story of a psychotic maniac and they did yeah. a really good job. Yeah, no, this is a buy it from me. It's 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 silly, but it's fun. Yeah. It's really fun. I've got one more book in the 80s, Matt. I don't know about you. I think it's I 1987. Yeah, I do, too. We're, we're just like all of this. No, I don't. Uh, my last one. is. Yeah, you do. You I do. Know you do. No, I totally do. Yeah. My next 80s book is Superman number four. It came out in 1987. It's written and drawn by John Byrne. It has a cover price of 75 cents. So just contrast that against uh, Vigilante, which came out a year before for double the price. Hey, newsprint versus Baxter print. All right. You're right. No, it's true. It's true. Which is sexier. Obviously, it is sexier. Baxter comics are great. They are so good. (sighs) Baxter, Baxter edition rules. Here's some background on Bloodsport. Robert Dubois is Bloodsport, a supervillain who uses high-tech guns and weaponry with kryptonite bullets that are teleported into his hands from an unknown location. He's mentally ill, he's obsessed with Vietnam, and he was hired by Lex Luthor and equipped to kill Superman in his deranged state. Not a great idea, Lex. I mean, like, I can see Lex not giving a shit. Uh, Well, actually, Lex does give a shit, and credit to Lex for later on in the issue... After Bloodsport is rampaging, he uh, Lex goes to Dabney Donovan or whoever his science, smart scientist guy is. And he's like, what the fuck did you do to this? You gave this lunatic our teleporting stuff and sent him out. He's murdered 50 people. Oh, like, yeah. Lex, I guess, Lex no, is right. upset about you're it. You're right. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, you know what? That Credit to Lex. The dude only has one speed, and that is kill Superman. Yeah. After this issue, Bloodsport spent years in prison where he was later murdered by the man that took the Bloodsport name, neo-Nazi Alex Trent. But we're not talking about that guy. (laughs) Uh, In the current continuity, such as it is, Dubois is alive and well and has become a member of the Suicide Squad as of earlier this year, which I'm sure is a complete coincidence. In the mid-80s, the Vietnam conflict was barely 20 years past, and so it still dominated a fair amount of the pop culture landscape in movies like First Blood and TV shows like The A-Team. Marvel even had a long-running war comic devoted to it called The Nam, and it's amazing. Yeah. John Byrne approaches this uh, story from a different angle with a man clearly broken by his experiences and given power he absolutely should not possess. Yes, Dubois is sick, but he has also murdered nearly 50 people in his delusional state and must be shut down. Not so easy when the guy can take Superman down with a gun that shoots needles made out of kryptonite. It's, you know, it's a bad scene. For sure. I love the twist that Byrne adds at the end that for all of the ranting Dubois did about his dead comrades dying in the dirt and all that stuff, he didn't actually experience any of it. He was a draft dodger. Yeah, it's very, and, it's very big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah, it's very big Lebowski, uh, but in a, in a tragic way. Right. Uh, his brother went to Vietnam. His brother posed as Robert Dubois to, so that Robert's name wouldn't get dragged through the mud. He went to Vietnam in his brother's stead only to come home as a quadruple amputee and the guilt just destroyed him. It destroyed blood sport it'll turn anyone into blood sport come on it would that kind yeah. of guilt it was only after being confronted by his brother smart thinking jimmy olsen that blood sports rampage was ended not only is burn a legendary writer 
Uh, but he's one of the greatest artists to ever grace comics. Oh, so yeah. it's no surprise that this issue looks amazing. Yeah. Superman number four. It's a wonderful action comic with some really poignant tragedy thrown in for good measure. I'm giving this a huge buy it. It's great. Okay. So this is the difference between some of the earlier comics we read with like Javelin and Captain fucking Boomerang. Superman shouldn't have any problems with a guy like Bloodsport whatsoever. But Byrne, and that's what Superman thinks, right? Yes. And, yeah. and Superman shows up with that mentality. And Byrne is smart enough to put a fun twist on that and give him some. He turns out he's empowered by Lex Luthor. So he's got some special weapons, but he's completely out of control. And he's completely out of control because he's a veteran. And Superman's like, oh, man, you know, I, how are we going to handle this? This guy, it's not even his fault. Turns out, no, he's not a veteran. And the real veteran shows up and is the hero like god damn john Byrne, that is hot <laughs> like seriously i mean a- you know i don't know it's it's a pretty smart take yeah. for a canadian for a guy that's not even from this country oh regardless you know and it ends yeah but still yeah it no, ends you're right. with a little yellow box is dedicated to all the names on the black wall and those who remember yeah, them i mean like and, man. It's like and that's like man look i remember this time period in pop culture where it's like China beach sure. and the 18. Yeah. We were, and yeah, it's we it like, all it's all living through the nom together. <laughs> and like, yeah. and it's like, look, man, I wasn't even alive when Vietnam ended and we're still living through our Vietnam guilt. And yeah. And, and it, it played out right here on the page and John Byrne did a great job. Man, of it. Yeah. This is great. Huge buy it. Huge buy it. I loved it. it. It just, it could have so easily been another stupid throwaway bad guy comic, but man. Yeah. I mean, and don't get me wrong. He looks stupid. And he's a, he's a wearing camo pants and a do rag. We it's should say dumb. he not only looks stupid, he has literally nothing to do with the character that appears in the suicide squad. Basically. No, the character, like they have, they have basically folded this character yeah. into an Idris Elba shaped box right. in the current DC universe. Our final comic from the eighties, Booster Gold, number one from DC. It is 1986. This came out and we may have to have a discussion about whether the villains were worse in the eighties or in the sixties. Cause I honestly don't know <laughs> at this point. And I think there's some strong arguments that can be made for the eighties. This was written and drawn by Dan Jurgens, Richard Hertz or Dick Hertz. Get it. Hey, <laughs> AKA Blackguard was initially hired by a criminal group called the 1000 who gave him an armored suit that gives him improved strength and lets him project an energy mace and shield. Not sure. Not shoot lasers. Mind you. No, no. Just project a shield. I mean, and a mace. <laughs> he's got he's got that medieval theme going, Matt. He's a black guard. He's got to have the shield and the mace. Sure seems a lot simpler to just make him strong, give him a real shield and a real mace. But hey, they went the extra mile and I admire that. Blackguard was hired to steal some satellite tech from Star Labs, but while driving the stolen tech down the metropolis streets in broad daylight, <laughs> Booster Gold shows up to foil their scheme. You would think we're going to break into Star Labs. We're going to steal some stuff. What time do you think we should do this? I don't know. I was thinking lunch. I'm like, well, we're going to do this outside of Metropolis. Doesn't Superman live there? Like, no, 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 no. This will be fine. During the battle, we in don't Metropolis, not <laughs> yeah. outside. Inside yeah, you're right. Metropolis. Star Labs is in yeah. goddamn Metropolis. During the battle, we really don't learn much about Blackguard other than he's big, he's mean, he's not very smart, and his energy weapons are green. Hertz is a moron, and Jurgens writes him as such. He goes on to join Neron later on during the Underworld Unleashed event after Neron gives him 
average intelligence when he asks to, quote, not be stupid anymore, which is so gut-wrenchingly sad. Man, <laughs> right? uh, see, but in this comic, he's not really portrayed as being especially stupid. Well, he's a dummy, and he gets beat in a really dumb way. Well, yeah, but he's not hes not dumb like, you know. No, he's not like, dumb, I'll get you, or whatever. But I mean, right, he's, he's not like Solomon Grundy dumb or whatever. obviously stupid. Dick does not go on to become Booster's nemesis, but he does end up being betrayed by the 1000 and teams up with Booster to take them down. Later, Hertz is burned by Guy Gardner while trying to take over his bar, Warriors. He ends up in prison, but later after that, after serving his time and healing from his burns, Blackguard becomes buddies and with Gardner and opens a new bar with Guy for a while. Sadly, in a Flowers for Algernon turn of events, Dick loses his average intellect, goes back to his life of crime, gets arrested, thrown in Bell River prison, and then ends up in the suicide squad where he later gets beheaded. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> this is like the ballad of Blackguard, man. <laughs> Holy God. The Jurgens booster run is really Dan Jurgens at his best. The art is slick, very classic 80s DC style. The story is a wacky celebrity superhero romp with an entirely white cast, I might add. Like, this is the whitest comic book I've seen in a long time. I mean, I white, 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 what you know, am I right? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I did notice in one panel, there is a zoom on Booster's right hand, and he yes. appears to be wearing a Legion ring. Is that where he gets yes. his powers from? He is, yes, he is stolen. Okay, so Booster is wearing a suit of uh, 25th century circuitry. Right. Uh, so he the, the suit itself... Um, does everything right well uh, he's wearing i believe the force field technology and the flight technology are like legion uh so obviously okay. it's the legion flight ring but i believe he's got something similar to brainiac 5's force field belt which is part of like uh, the joke he's borrowed all his stuff and he's not really yeah yeah right uh, like he stole it all from a museum he was a got security it. guard at a museum he was boost booster goal and none of this is in the comic by the way which is ridiculous no um this is booster gold's first appearance as well yeah i'm i think right as far as i know and, yeah i think so. let me look and so sure like none it. of this none of this backstory is in this comic but booster gold was a professional football player in the 25th century mind you five centuries prior to the legion of superheroes how he got his hands on legion technology i'm not I, i'm not 100 it was sure, around it, whatever uh, and, yeah. you know it got left behind in time travel whatever first appearance booster gold number one 1986 and yeah so um he got caught betting on his own games and uh very his career, rose, you know? very heroes <laughs> his his career got flushed down the toilet and he ended up being a janitor or a security guard at a museum where he stole all of this uh technology and skeets and time travel technology that was just laying around this museum sure and he said you know what i can go back in time and use my future knowledge to be the world's greatest superhero there you go booster gold thank you for joe's booster story gold. time there we are yeah you're welcome leapfrogging my final comic of this uh this week that we have just spent a lot of time revisiting is superboy number nine from 1994 it's written by carl kessel with art by humberto ramos it is a dollar fifty an era appropriate price yeah I do think Here, after reading this, Carl Kessel should probably be on a list of people that need to be watched. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. All right. Um, 
Here's some background on King Shark. I, I, I'm struggling to pronounce this name the way they did it in the movie, but it's Nananue. Yeah. Nananue is a humanoid shark. His father is the king of all sharks, a.k.a. the shark god. Originally, uh, there was some doubt surrounding some uh, surrounding those origins. Like there were characters like Agent Sam Makoa, who was a Superboy supporting uh, character, who dismissed it as superstition. And he just referred to Nananue. Nanawe. I, I'll go with you. It's Nanawe. Got it. I, put, I was putting too many ends in it. It's Nanawe. Uh, he just said he was a savage mutation, which, you know, that's what you would believe. You, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, he's a god. Uh, it was also implied at some point that he was uh, one of the precursors to the wild men, really? which was the group of evolved animals uh, that showed up in Commandy, uh, the last boy on earth. There was um, a. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you cut. don't. For those of you that don't know, if you stuck with this comic uh, through its run after issue 50, Carl Castle and Tom Grummet decided, you know what? Fuck it. We're doing all Jack Kirby all the time. Yeah. And it became like a Jack Kirby love letter every month for like a long time. And it's great. Mixed with really uncomfortable pervy Superboy stuff. Well, they kind of got away from a little bit of that. Uh, later, Gail Simone would give King Shark the dopey personality we all loved so much during the sh his short tenure in the Secret Six, and he'd become a regular fixture in the Suicide Squad with the New 52. King Shark was created by the regular Superboy team of Kessel and artist Tom Grummet. Uh, he made his first full appearance the previous issue, which is Superboy Zero. Don't get confused. It was part of Zero Hour as a whole thing. Don't worry about it. Originally, he was little more than a savage beast, like a swimming Hulk with sharp teeth. So it was interesting to see how much the character has evolved. Like the King Shark we have today is nothing like this King Shark. No, not at all. What else was interesting was how horny the 90s Superboy comic book was. This was this, the same thing happened the last time we read a Superboy comic. The it's last true. Time no, you're right. It's, we it discussed did. Superboy. There were two full grown women that wanted to have sex with 16 year old Superboy. And yeah. 16 might be too old. He could be 15. Hell, he could be 14, Joe. <laughs> it's true. I mean, he's a he is a contemporary of Robin and uh, of Tim Drake and Bart Allen. Right. So he's supposed to be in that same age range. And I don't think that they were really making that leap too fast that Tim is like all of a sudden 16, 17 years old. It's like, no, Tim is like 14, 15 years yeah. old. Yeah. <laughs> now. I, I, I mean, I guess I always knew that I read this comic book on the rack back in the day every month. Uh, it was a shock to revisit it in the modern day. Like he is leering at bikini clad girls on the beach, literally with x-ray vision. Like he is staring at women and violating their privacy yeah, with x-ray Straight vision. voyeur shit. <laughs> uh, he's also in a, at the same time, he is in a relationship with an adult woman. Who he uh, also is looking at with his x-ray vision <laughs> while she's crawling around on the beach. <laughs> right. Now, if we're being generous and we're saying that Tana Moon is some sort of journalistic prodigy, she's fresh out of college. Uh, the network, the network in that town that they live in was like hard up for a reporter. They hired her on the spot, whatever. She's like, Doogie whatever, Hauser. whatever. <laughs> I mean, whatever hoop she need to jump through at a maximum or pardon me, at a bare minimum, that girl is at 18. 19. Yeah. She's college aged, right. right? 
but no, she is a television journalist, which means she is probably a college graduate. <laughs> probably. All these adult women were hot for super boy. He had yes. boy uh, in his name. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> super boy is in fact a child, the equivalent of maybe 16 years old. Yeah. But in reality, it's only been about 16 months since he escaped from the cloning vat. <laughs> so, you know, your mileage may vary on that one. Uh, other than the oddly problematic elements, Kessel's script walks the line between light fun and sheer terror. Uh, I did think he did a fine job showing how even a character as powerful as Superboy could be rattled in the face of a creature like King Shark. Oh, for sure. Uh, this issue features some of the earliest art I ever remember seeing from Umberto Ramos, uh, who would go on to a breakout run on Impulse, among many other high-profile gigs. This Ramos is obviously at the start of his career, still learning the comic storytelling basics, uh, but it was really neat to see the beginnings of a future superstar. It's like, uh, you know, it's like seeing uh, Todd McFarlane's early issues of Infinity Inc. before yeah. he actually came into his own. Superboy number nine for all of its 90s teen sex comedy trappings. <sighs> Look, I'm, I'm sorry. It's still a really fun issue. It helped bring us our favorite dumb carnivore from the Suicide Squad movie. I'm giving this a buy it. It is, uh, it is grossly problematic. I'm giving it a skim it. And not because I'm like super offended or anything, but Carl Kessel obviously like, well, I got to write a kid. What was I like as a kid? I don't know. Horny as fucking hell. <laughs> like, Which, as a, like, and I'm you not going to say that I is, wasn't. I was looking at porn mags and stuff when I was 16, but you know what I wasn't doing? Peeking through windows and drilling holes yeah, in walls, Porky style, where, you know, whatever, regardless of that, there was some cool shit that they did with King Shark that was legit scary. The thing where, like, King Shark's mom feeds him her arm because he's like, yeah, her own arm. Baby's got to eat. Like, there was some creepy stuff there. I just, I feel nothing for this Superboy run. I know you do. I and do. I thought the art was pretty good. You know, it, like, you can see Ramos becoming remote in some of these panels i just feel nothing for this run or that character i, I i'm giving it a skim it and i agree totally fair this king shark is nothing like the one that we recognize from the movies but it is a fun you know i will say the origin still you know somewhat similar we don't really know they call him that in the movie so maybe nobody really knows where he came from and it doesn't matter is what it is yeah i mean the the, the really the reality is it in a movie like The Suicide Squad, it doesn't really matter, doesn't matter. If, yeah. uh, if he's really the son of a shark god or not. They right. say that he's the son of a shark god, and that's good enough. Sure. Candy, grab my foot. You get out of here before I call the police. You're the shark, and you know it. Wait, I, I'm only a dolphin, ma'am. <laughs> a dolphin? Well, okay. <laughs> Let's jump all the way to the year 2003 for Birds of Prey, number 57 from DC. Speaking of horny comic books, this is written by Gail Simone <laughs> with art by Ed Bennies. Here we're talking about Savant, a.k.a. Brian Durlin, who was a lot like Bruce Wayne. He was the heir to a massive fortune and a self-styled vigilante that moved to Gotham. But when he encountered Batman, Savant was told that he was not up to the task due to his extreme lack of compassion. <laughs> the experience would become a defining moment for Savant and turn him to a life of crime, trying to expose the bat by going after his associates. In this issue, Savant takes Black Canary hostage in an attempt to get Oracle Barbara Gordon, who was still paralyzed from the waist down at the time, 
to rat out Batman. Savant works with his ex-KGB partner, Creote, who is also in love with him. I don't That's recall true. if Savant was in a relationship with Creote or if Creote just loved him. I don't know. No, I think it was unrequited, if I recall. Okay. Gail Simone was writing an extremely empowered female comic fiction back in the 90s before it was cool to do that. And it's odd because Ed Benis was on art duties and that yeah. dude loved to draw butts, boobs, and crotch and, and shots. Bo- and boobs and butts. Especially yeah. crotch shots. But he was a very talented artist. I love this run and legitimately love Savant as a character. He was the spoiled, rotten version of Batman who believed he was just as good as a bat because his mom told him he was special. There's some really great Huntress moments in this issue, too. Another Bat character that I love that I don't think gets enough play. Is the art problematic? Yeah, it definitely is. It's, it's without a doubt, it's as horny as the 90s could possibly be. It's very cheesecakey. Oh, yeah. But you can't deny that this was a completely female-driven, empowered hero story written by one of comics loudest feminists gail simone i'm giving this a huge buy yeah gail simone's run on birds of prey is great and this issue this is very early in her run yeah and uh it's fantastic uh, savant is a is a fun character he is like a kind of a he's kind of a he's a deranged batman but he's deranged in a different way right right uh and uh it's it's fun. He's funny. Creote is cool, you know. And like later on, like Gail would would do stuff with these characters for years to come. Yeah. And and you know they go on quite a journey. And I like them a lot. And I think Savant. Uh, I thought he was done dirty by the Suicide Squad movie. Uh, without spoiling anything else other than that. Uh, and it was fun to go back and reread this early appearance. It's not only that this is Ed Bennis uh, doing this, but it, this also came at a time where it's like, okay, female character. Got it. Um, how big is the hole in the front of her costume? Right. Right. Well, I mean, how big can you make it? I mean, big, I mean, big enough, like big enough to pretend she doesn't have nipples. If you want, you know, we'll just make that whole thing see through. You know, so you've got your power girls. You've got Huntress with this ridiculous Jim Lee midriff. Co- nobody goes into battle dressed like this. Nobody. Except for Red Sonia, but she has a reason. Well, Red Sonia, that's different. She you wants know, you she to look was at a her, barbarian so woman. You, you know, <laughs> like you don't you do not go. You do not go into fighting uh, crime against guys like Mr. Freeze and Killer Croc wearing thigh high boots and a shirt with your belly exposed. No, you don't. It's, it's fucking stupid or heels. It's really stupid. They, oh, yeah, this or is heels, back when exactly everybody had right. heels, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. But if you were a hero, uh, if you're a heroine, you were basically a porn star, you know? <laughs> that's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, I don't, I'm not defending it, but it is the time that it was. Yeah. And so that's what we're dealing with. Um, I always have had a soft spot for Ed Benes because I think proclivity is a slut. He's pro- great. Proclivities aside, I think that he was always the best of these 90s. He kind of got to start as like a Joe Madureira clone, yeah. right? And he came into his own and developed his own style. He's and great. I think Ed Bennis is a very talented artist in his Super own Super right. talented. And you know what? I can't completely fault Ed Bennis for drawing sexy women like this because this was 2003. And the, like 
they were competing with a lot of other comics that were trying to get sure. young men uh, and it, to yeah, buy them I, using look, boobs and, again, and butts. Like, well, it's, it's no defense. They, you know, it doesn't need to be defended. The time has come and gone. Right. But, um, I think that if we're looking at his art objectively in terms of his talent, I think it's there. I think he's great. Yeah. And I think that he only got better because he, if you look at um, his work with Brad Meltzer on Justice League of America, which I mentioned earlier in the show. Oh, yeah. Ed Bennis was the artist of that. And book. it's beautiful. And it's it's outstanding. It's outstanding. Uh, and also Birds of Prey had a long lineage of like the 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 guy that had a long run on the book before this was Greg Land, yeah. right? Or who or whoever. But that was a different um, Greg Land, and that Greg Land kicked ass. That book that Greg Land oh, no, looked so nine. good. Did he drop Birds of Prey? As he well? drew Birds of Prey, yeah. Yes, it was an unfortunate time for portrayal of female characters. Gail Simone does a hell of a job writing a kick-ass team uh, of Birds of Prey, and I love this run. It's a buy it for me. Before we can return to the Ziggurat, we have to pick one of these comics to enter the THN permanent collection, but just for funsies, let's pick a favorite character from the group as well. Matt, what do you got? My favorite Favorite book? And favorite character. My favorite character in this group was the fucking Peacemaker. <laughs> he was just so nuts. <laughs> no. I loved him. He was so off the wall nuts. Also, totally not his fault for the situation he was put in. Somebody set him up, told him he's a hero, dressed him in the flag, sent him on his way. <laughs> like, I loved the Peacemaker. He's my favorite. But if I'm putting one of these books in the permanent collection, it's Birds of Prey 57. It's, it's from... One of my favorite runs of comics. I love Gail Simone so much. And th this run, this was the friendship that's developed between Oracle and Black Canary and the Huntress. And it, it was just wonderful. I love that run of comics. That's fair. Uh, you know, you may have swayed me because I was going to give it to Superman number four just because I really love that run. That John Byrne Superman run it's, so it's much. It's a great but issue. It's a great issue. I mean, and it is a great issue. Uh, so if I were going to pick my favorite character from the uh, batch, uh, I think I'm giving it to Captain Boomerang. Just because he's so stupid. <laughs> Captain Boomerang is so silly, and that's why I love him. He's ridiculous, just like all of the Flash Rogues. And the best part about the Flash Rogues is each new writer of the Flash in the decades that have come since then trying to tell their definitive take on the flash rugs and why they are a serious thing that you should feel seriously about. There you go. Without changing the fact that this is a grown ass man wearing a scarf. Yeah. That throws boomerangs. Uh, I love him. I love Captain Boomerang. I don't even care. Favorite issue. I'm, I'm going to give it to birds of prey. You've swayed me. It's very good. I love this run and I haven't re I've read that Superman comic a thousand times. I hadn't reread this comic since it came out. It made me want to read that whole. Run. And I want to read, I want to go back and read that run yeah. for sure. I do. Yeah. I, I absolutely loved it. That is a solid pick. Hey nerds, you want to read along with us? You can find our review list on our Twitter and our Facebook weekly on Tuesdays. And don't forget to check our Instagram feed to see our cover of the week every Wednesday. Also, let us know what you thought about these comics, these characters, and anything you read this week on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover. 
It happens on Saturdays on Facebook Live from 11 to noon Central Standard Time. Now that we've rematerialized in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, it's time to very carefully remove these explosive devices from our necks and set these nerds up with our must-read picks for next week. Matt Bomb, what are you excited for? I've just been kind of squeezing mine like a pimple, to tell you the truth, and I'm starting to think it's a bad idea. Next week, I'm excited for Echo Lands number one from Image Comics. It is written by J.H. Williams and Hayden Blackman with art by J.H. Williams and Dave Stewart. Here's your solicit. The story of Earth's last war starts with Hope's sticky fingers. Gross. The multiple award-winning Batwoman team, J.H. Williams, who also worked in Promethea, The Sandman Overture, Batman, and W.H. Blackman, <laughs> who's also there, who worked on Star Wars and Elektra, reunite for an all-new ongoing series. They're joined once again by Colorist Supreme, Dave Stewart, and Master Letterer, Todd Klein. You can tell that... It's quite a creative team, man. You can tell the creative team wrote this. And I think it's great. They're calling it their letterer, buddy. Well, I mean, they always, they always do. That's great. Creator on shit. In a bizarre future world that has forgotten its history, a reckless thief, Hope Red Hood, holds the key to excavating its dark, strange past. If only she and her crew can escape a tyrannical wizard and his unstoppable daughter. But fate will send them all in a path leading to war between worlds. Echoland is a landscape format mythic fiction epic where anything is possible. Keeps on going. It really does. A fast-paced genre mashup adventure that combines everything from horror movie vampires to classic mobsters and cyborg elves to Roman demigods and retro rocket ships. It's going to be a hell of a ride. Each issue of the series. Oh my God. I know. We'll offer a raw cut edition featuring the art from G.H. Williams the Three as it looked, leaving his work studio. I don't know what that last part means. I don't either. <laughs> I mean, so it means black and white. Then. I guess like before that idiot Dave Stewart got hold of it. <laughs> you know? What? If there's one thing that ruins every comic book yeah. Dave Stewart touches Finger its painter color. Dave Stewart. <laughs> no, look, I love this friggin' art team. I do, we'll see how it's written. I really enjoyed the Batwoman that they all worked on together. I think G.H. Williams and Blackman and Stewart are very excited about this and really want you to buy it based on that solicit. So, I'm in. Well, I mean, can you blame them? No. My pick for next week is Superman 78, number one from DC Comics. It's $4.99. And you know what? I actually don't remember if, I don't know if that's the right price or not. Uh, it's probably $3.99. It's written by Robert Venditti with art by Wilfredo Torres. Uh, you might remember us talking about Wilfredo Torres when we did our Take a Look at Cinebook for Jupiter's Circle. He's awesome. AKA Jupiter's Legacy. Here's your solicit. Fly into director Richard Donner's Superman once more in Superman 78, written by that guy I just talked about and drawn by that other guy I just talked about. Superman 78 tells a brand new adventure in the world of the beloved film. A bright, shining day in Metropolis is interrupted by a mysterious drone that crash lands in the city and starts wreaking havoc. This looks like a job for Superman. But where did the metallic menace come from? What is its purpose? And who is Brainiac? Neato. Look, we did Batman 89 last week. Right. Matt made some good points about how the Batman uh, movies are pure nostalgia at this right. point, And they don't hold up from a critical standpoint. That's fair. However, 
I think Superman 78 is a masterpiece. <laughs> I do too. No, Superman on the other and hand. And I will hear no arguments to the contrary. Uh, it is still the best Superman movie ever made. No question. Uh, Superman, like Superman, the movie is my favorite movie of all time. And uh, when they said that they were coming back out and doing a Batman 66, uh, you know, style comic based on it, I was all in just from the jump. Like, give it to me, inject it straight into my veins. Sure. I love Robert Venditti. I love Wilfredo Torres. And yeah. the preview art that they have released with his takes on like Gene Hackman and Christopher Reeve and oh, Margaret Quinn. It looks fantastic. It's like. It's making my heart swell to like dangerous proportions. Like I might need to get hospitalized. It's already pretty big. I'm worried about you to be honest. I know. Uh, and uh, I think it's, I, I love it when it's like, here's a thing you've been reading about your whole life, but has never appeared in the context of this version, like Brainiac. Like how would they have done Brainiac? I'm into it. Yeah, totally down. The THN trade of the week for next week goes to Old Head from Image Comics. It's $16.99. It is written and drawn by Kyle Starks. Here's your solicit. Space Jam meets Fright Night in this hilarious action horror as a former basketball star returns home to bury his mother, only to learn of her mysterious past, his destiny, and to find himself embroiled in a decades-long blood feud with actual Dracula. <laughs> yeah, for real Dracula. <laughs> now, we have raved about a lot of Kyle Stark's stuff. We loved Sex Castle. We did take a look. It's in a book, Old Head style, with Ryan Mount That's on right. this very show. That's right. Uh, but it was a Kickstarter release. That's and right. And so now it's finally coming to print. You can read it too. It's hilarious. You're going to love it. Go pick this up. Kyle Stark's the guy doesn't make bad comics. Uh, the six sidekicks of Trigger Keaton, I think, is Kyle Stark's. Yes. Yeah, it, he does good work. Be sure to pre-order these comics if you're looking for a quality read and tune in next week to hear our THN Take a Look. It's in a book club review of Johnny Constantine, The Mystery of the Meanest Teacher with Jason Sachs and the aforementioned Ryan Mount. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THN 631. And next week, we are also back to doing what we do best. And let me tell you, when we review new comics, it ain't pretty. If you want to wrap about this week's episode or any of the weekly nerdy news we are following, you can follow that on our Faces book. Hit us up on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover, every Saturday at 11 Central Standard Time. It is hosted on our Facebook page. And don't forget about the latest question of the week. This week's question is courtesy of Ryan Hebrews Mount. That's the third time we've mentioned that guy this episode. He's a special boy. He wants to know about one hit wonders. There are certain creators who have had one magical run. Then they never fully captured that magic again. Oh, Let's God. talk about them. We're talking about writers or artists or writer slash artists. I love it. This is going to be a fun one. Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. We do need them every week and we appreciate them when you submit them. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, the THN forums, you know, wherever you reach us. You can also call 402-819-4894 or join our Zoom by clicking the link in the Facebook Live video chat. And if you can't be there for cover to cover to live, shoot an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the hotline and you could be internet famous. Uh, please do remember to share the air and keep your recorded messages to two minutes or less. 
If you're new to the show and you'd rather stare at us through x-ray glasses than listen to any more, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN over in our digital long box archive at nerd.com, but hosting that many episodes ain't cheap. So you want to thank patrons like our man on the street, Damon Chan, who reunited with us during last week's cover to cover after a 20 year hiatus. I don't know if that's Yeah, it was something like 20 years, wasn't it? It was like a 20 year hiatus. I don't think we've been around that long. I don't know. It was at least 20 years. I think it was maybe 25 years. I can't do that math, but you know. Hmm. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to Jason Sachs and his lovely bride, Lisa, on their 31st anniversary, which I believe is your Baxter print anniversary. It's true. Coincidentally. Yeah. Where do you crazy kids and Lisa, we sincerely hope that this wasn't the only gift Jason bought you this year. Because let me tell you, shout outs don't come cheap. No. I'm, I mean, they're actually really cheap. You can get one for five bucks. Five bucks. We'll shout out whatever you want. Look, come on. I just want her. I want her to think that he spent a lot of money. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just make sure they're all printed on newsprint. This is the two-headed nerd signing off. You make that sound like a threat, but I would really be okay with that. No way, man. Newsprint sucks. Get out of here.